Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 23A, an interview on Benjamin Harrison and why a winner lost with Charles Calhoun. I'm excited to welcome Professor Charles Calhoun to the show today. Charles is a retired distinguished professor of history at East Carolina University, a past president of the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and author of The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, and also Benjamin Harrison, the latter of which was the primary biography I read for my research into Harrison. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about Harrison with a special focus on how a president who seemingly accomplished so much with Congress was voted out of office after just one term in a rematch with his predecessor, Grover Cleveland. This all does feel especially timely because we live in a time right now where there's a lot of smoke that our previous president, Donald Trump, plans to challenge our current president, Joe Biden, to a rematch in 2024. What can the past teach us about our future? Charles, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Glad to be with you. I'd love to start with a comparison of how the political moment of Harrison's day was similar or dissimilar to our own. What was the nature of party conflict like in the late 19th century, especially after 1877? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, one way, of course, the two areas are uh, similar is that uh, partisanship was, is, was very, very strong in the late 19th century, and certainly partisanship is very strong today. But uh, Politics in the United States after 1877, the the word that I would choose to characterize that period in our political history is equilibrium. This is sometimes thought of as a a period of Republican dominance, or there's a famous book that came out uh, decades ago now called The Republican Era, which dealt with that period. And and that's really not the case, because if you look at at, uh, the returns of the elections, it really was a time when the two political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, were were pretty much equal in strength. Um, each, each party, of course, had its own block of vote uh, of states uh, that they could count on in any given el- presidential election. Of course, the Democrats, particularly from the eight, uh, late 1870s on, had the solid South. Uh, and you didn't, you didn't get a, a Republican winning any state from the former Confederacy until well into the 20th century. Uh, and the Republicans, Less well known, but this is true as well. The Republicans had a block of votes uh, of states in the uh, in the Northeast, uh, New England, the Upper Midwest, and it's a little less degree uh, out west. And uh, so they had these two blocks of, of states. Each party could depend upon pretty regularly. The Democrats really very much so with the, with this Democratic uh, with the Solid South, but neither one of those blocks was was large enough to win a presidential election. So just like today, there were swing states. And of course, uh, back then, the word you often heard people say was, well, they were called the doubtful states. And who, what (laughs) states were they? Uh, It was was doubtful which way they would go uh, in any given presidential election. And so um, the, uh, the, the main doubtful states were New York and Indiana. And in the 1880s, the decade we're interested here today, in uh, the New York had 36 electoral votes and Indiana had 15. So they were big states as well as as being uh, up in the air, really, swing states. Connecticut and New Jersey, also swing states, uh, smaller states, not quite as um, as doubtful as as Indiana and New York or as important just by virtue of their size. So this this had some consequences in how 
politics was conducted. First of all, um, because the, just any little thing could throw off an election one way or the other, as James G. Blaine found out in 1884, when he lost a very close election to Grover Cleveland, um, the, the politicians, the presidential candidates and so forth had to be very careful in how they discussed issues. They didn't want to go too far out on any limb because, you know, it might offend some little pocket in New York or Indiana, and that could, that could really change the outcome of a, of a presidential election. You know, we sometimes, historians used to say, oh, well, there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. Part of the reason that image got uh, I think encrusted in people's minds was that uh, was that uh, because there was this care in how you you treated issues, you didn't want to go too far on one way or another on certain issues because you could you could lose uh, perhaps one little constituency here or there. So, but I'll I'll come back to issues in a minute. But but the other consequence I think of of these this uh, equilibrium and and this uh, sort of toss up uh, situation in, in any given presidential election was. Um, that it sort of magnified the arts of political organization and management. We, we think of this era as the, as the time of the bosses. Well, one of the reasons the bosses were powerful was, especially in, in states like New York and Indiana, was that, you know, if they got out the guys to, to, to get out the vote for the presidential candidate, then it was going to look pretty good for that for that candidate, perhaps. But, but if, if a boss in a, in a major state like New York was sort of, shall we say, off the presidential candidate, then they might not be quite as enthusiastic uh, uh, about uh, rallying the troops. So, so that, that is a, um, another important consequence of this, of this equilibrium, that, that it did magnify the, the power of the bosses. But I, I said about issues, I do want to point out that Although they had to treat issues gingerly, there was a very distinct difference between the Republicans and Democrats of the late 19th century, just as there is today, another similarity, except that the sort of attitudinal uh, vectors are quite the reverse. In the, in the late 19th century, the Republicans were much more the activist party. They were the party that saw possibilities in government, um, particularly at the national level, to stimulate the economy and, and so forth. Democrats were still very much at that time in, in the old states' rights, small, uh, limited government mode. Some people call Grover Cleveland the last Jacksonian because he was, he was a, a small government guy, uh, the, maybe the last Jeffersonian, if you will. So um, that, that uh, uh, there, there was that dis distinction. And I think, again, for years, for decades, historians, I think, didn't pay enough attention to that distinction. And it's not the case so much anymore. One other consequence of all this, of course, is that there was, this was a period of divided government. Um, as I said earlier, at the beginning, this is sometimes referred to as the Republican era. Well, in fact, uh, it wasn't so much a Republican era in the sense that who controlled the federal government. Uh, after, after 1875, no party controlled the presidency, the Senate, and the House until 1889, when Benjamin Harrison came in. So you had that long period of divided government, which was really more the standard at that time than, uh, than dominance of one party over all three entities. And again, another misconception perhaps we have of the late 19th century is, well, those guys didn't accomplish anything. Well, how much can you accomplish with divided government? I think, you know, we... Today, we're seeing how difficult it is to accomplish anything with united government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or at least 
single party control of the House, Senate and presidency. So it's it's uh, it, there, there was a good bit done. And this is what I think we'll get into will differentiates Harrison's at least first half of his term with this other uh, image we have of, of divided government at that time. All right. So we have a very politically divided country, but very evenly divided and an era where regional bosses are holding a lot of kind of outsized power relative history. So how does Harrison step into this and step onto the national stage and win the Republican presidential nomination in 1888? The the guy who everybody thought was going to be the Republican nominee in 1888 was James G. Blaine, who had, you know, as I said earlier, lost a real squeaker to Grover Cleveland. You know, 600 votes going the other way in New York, we would have had President Blaine instead of President Cleveland in the mid-1880s. Um, but that didn't happen. But every so many people in the Republican Party thought, well, let's try this again with with this guy. And um, but Blaine withdrew from consideration in um, in uh, uh, early 1888. He was traveling abroad and uh, sent a letter back home saying uh, my name will not be presented to the to the Republican National Convention. Now, this, We'll talk more about how that nomination came about in 88, but, but the, the idea that uh, Blaine was, was slamming the door shut is probably an overstatement. Uh, I think there's very good evidence that he would have liked to keep his foot in the door and, and, and willing to accept a draft, but, but we can discuss that more. Harrison, well, okay, when, when, when Blaine withdrew, the, the, the field was in a sense wide open and there were lots of candidates. Harrison was one of them. He wasn't perhaps the best known. Uh, John Sherman, a longtime senator and congressman, secretary of the Treasury under Hayes, very well-known uh, politician, William Allison of, of Iowa. Uh, several, several men were vying for the nomination, but Harrison was one of them. Harrison was in no sense a favorite son candidate. And he had lots of assets going for him. He was, of course, a scion of a very famous political family. His grandfather had been president only for a month, but he was elected after one of the most, uh, you know, boisterous political campaigns in the history of the presidency. The oh, yeah. 1840 Tippecanoe campaign. Yeah. In fact, some people refer to Ben Harrison as, as uh, you know, young tip, as it were. Um, so, so he had that. He had name recognition in that sense. He was a, he was a very bright guy. He was an excellent speaker. And beginning in the mid 1870s, he had been begun traveling around. Uh, he had grown into the in, he's from Indiana. He he had grown into leadership positions in the Republican Party in Indiana. And by the way, residence in Indiana was a plus for him. That's a doubtful state. And the parties tended to nominate people from doubtful states. How does a guy like Grover Cleveland, who's kind of stolid, not very interesting, get picked because he was governor of New York? But anyway, Harrison's from Indiana, but in the mid-70s, he began to make speeches for other candidates around the country in the Hayes campaign of 76 and for Garfield in 80 and got himself well-known around the country. Uh, and um, he was a senator as well from 81 to 87. So he was on the national stage. Uh, people knew this person uh, and, they, they, and he won a lot of respect from his fellow Republicans in the Senate. And so he was... He was clearly, when people were thinking about the presidency in 1888, especially after Blaine's withdrawal, they, they began to say, you know, Harrison doesn't look bad. And interesting, interestingly, one of the most important people who said that was none other than James G. Blaine. Mm. Blaine was traveling in Europe in that spring, 
Uh, and uh, he wrote home to one of his his uh, his uh, political advisors saying, you know, I've looked over the field and Sherman's no good and this guy's no good and that guy's no good. But, but I think the person who could make the best run is Ben Harrison. And he wrote that letter in March. Um, so um, Harrison w- managed to get the delegation from his own state of Indiana, um, more than a favorite son candidacy, really. But... Uh, in the convention, uh, there's very strong evidence, and I wrote about this in, in the Harrison biography and, and some other works I've done too, but there's very strong evidence that, um, that Blaine did not discourage a movement on the part of his friends back in the United States, I said he was abroad in Europe, um, to play a kind of game, if you will, in the, in the convention, that is to say, it was going to be a deadlock convention. It was going to be a convention on the first ballot where you had a wide dispersal of votes for the nomination. Yeah, because you got all these and, guys. Yeah, and and um, you know nobody would be even close to a majority at the beginning. And so um, the uh, the idea of the Blaine managers was okay. We'll let this be sort of um, deadlocked for a while with nobody moving ahead. And then we'll we'll sort of throw a bit of support to several people in order. And then we'll show, oh, well, this guy can't, uh, he doesn't, he can't uh, spur a a, a run to him. And then the next guy and the next guy. And then we'll get to this point where we'll we'll have to nominate Blaine. Um, Well, the first person they chose for this dubious honor of, uh, you know, having these votes, a little bit of voting for him at the, at the outset or, or near the outset was, was Harrison. And uh, what happened was that the Harrison's managers were clever enough to begin to say, uh, especially on the second day of balloting when Harrison's votes went up considerably, Harrison worked, Harrison's men worked very closely with the New York delegation, got them to plop for Harrison. Of course, he had his own delegation from Indiana. He had several other states moving in his direction. And eventually, uh, they were able to convince the convention. After several days of balloting, that it began to coalesce toward Harrison. And at the very, at, toward the end of it all, uh, this all happened over a weekend. On Sunday, Blaine sent another telegram from Europe saying, uh, I don't want to be considered. What Blaine really wanted was a unanimous or near unanimous nomination. And it looked like that wasn't going to happen. So he withdrew. Harrison was his guy. And in the back of Blaine's mind was the idea that, uh, well, you know, I was secretary of state under Garfield. I wouldn't mind that job back. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, he thought Harrison would probably pick him. And in fact, he did uh, after the after the election. Yeah. Blaine strikes me as a guy who's, who's always got like a game he's playing. <laughs> yes. Yes. So- so Harrison, he wins the GOP nomination, and then it was time for him to face uh, President Grover Cleveland in the general election. What were the prominent issues in 1888, and why did, how did Harrison come out on top? Well, <clears throat> Cleveland, in a sense, set the, the issues for 1888 um, in a number of ways, but the most important way was that in his annual message to Congress in December of 1887. In those days, remember, you didn't have a State of the Union address. You had the annual message from the president sent in on paper. Uh, Jefferson was the last guy to speak before, well, he didn't want to speak before Congress. Right. Uh, And so it was was, uh, on paper until Woodrow Wilson's time. So Cleveland's annual message in 1887 
usually what those guys did in these annual messages was sort of give a rundown what's been happening for the year, what maybe we ought to look at these kinds of issues in the future. He devoted the entire message to one subject, and that was the tariff. Now, this is, this is where people's eyes begin to glaze over. My goodness, <laughs> tariff, what a boring issue. Well, here's the circumstance that the country faced at that time, the federal government. It was running a surplus. You heard me correctly, a surplus. This is, this is you know, quite different from our time. Um, and, and there was a growing feeling that, you know, we're dragging too much money out of the economy, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, we're, we're depriving private interests, uh, businesses, labor, everybody of, you know, some money that, that we're, we're hauling into the treasury. We have to discover some way of reversing that. And, um, and we're not talking about little bitty surpluses. We're talking about a third of the revenues coming in were over the expenditures needed. So really a lot of money. And so um, Cleveland in the, in, the, uh, in the message of 87 said, we need to reduce the tariff. That's the way to do this. Um, and, uh, and he also d- described the tariff as, as illogical and, and harmful because he said it, it tends to increase prices for the consumer. It tends to raise the prices of, um, of uh, raw materials for manufacturers. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll lower the tariff rates and um, uh, everyone will benefit. Well, the Republicans were delighted to see that uh, be the issue because they took the exactly opposite point of view regarding the tariff. They said um, what the tariff does is to provide protection from foreign competition. You know, we, these, these things resonate with us today. We, the tariff is sort of back as an issue to some degree today, not as big and, and as overwhelming an issue as it was then, but certainly uh, t- thought of today. And so um, the Republicans said, no, this, this would be a terrible thing. In fact, right after Cleveland's message, Blaine, again, in Europe, uh, I think he was in Paris at the time, sent in a, a, an interview saying, just trashing what Cleveland had said. And this is what every, this made everybody think, oh, he's going to run again. And then of course he did withdraw the next month. But, but the Republicans were delighted at this because they think they thought they could go to the people and say, and they had been doing this, Blaine campaigned on this in 84, that labor benefits from a protective tariff, that uh, they talked about you know, the pauper labor of Europe, goods coming in from Great Britain or undersell our, uh, goods and people would be laid off and, and people working in factories or small uh, companies will have to be laid off and lose their jobs and they'll go into farming and that'll be competitors for farmers already who are in bad shape. So, that, you know, everybody will suffer from this. And they said, on the other hand, farmers will benefit as well as laborers from a protective tariff because when you have a city full of workers working in factories, somebody's got to feed them. Somebody's got to provide them with raw materials. And that should be the job of the American farmer. So, um, and Republicans also took the position, you know what, if we're raising too much money, maybe, or, or an excess of money, yeah, we wouldn't call it too much. They said, <laughs> there are uses to which this money can be put. And they talked about defense. They talked about the need to, to build up the Navy. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is when nations around the world uh, were, were beefing up their navies, ironclad navies and, and steel-clad navies and, and, and so forth, and steam power and getting away from sail and all that. So um, if, if the United States was going to remain uh, 
competitive in the world or, or get onto the world stage, uh, which these people thought was their due, the countries do, then, then we need to have a stronger Navy. And uh, they were talking about spending money on, on ship subsidies to help the merchant marine get back on its feet after it had been destroyed during the Civil War. And another big item that they talked about in connection with the tariff, but freestanding as well, was pensions for Union veterans during from the Civil War era. Yeah. Got, many people came out of the war injured, could not support themselves. And um, the, the Republicans said, we really need to, to do something about these people. And there, there already was a pension system, but it was it was very parsimonious. And and the way it worked was you could you, you could qualify uh, for a pension if you had a, an injury that kept you from working. But but the rules were pretty strict. And and then if you if you couldn't get one from the pension bureau, you could ask your congressman to put in a special bill for you to get to get um, uh, a pension. Yeah. And Grover Cleveland, as president, vetoed tons of those bills. Yeah. yeah. And you can imagine what the old soldiers in blue thought about that. So the pension issue was actually a pretty big issue in the 88 election as well. Yeah. I could imagine that one being especially huge because it's it's only the Union veterans getting these pensions, right? So everyone in the South is just like, you're continuing to steal our wealth and give it to people in the North. Am I right? And that's how it worked? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, Cleveland was a Democrat. And Cleveland always kept one eye on his Southern base. And uh, he actually vetoed not only individual pensions, but a, a rather large, all-encompassing dependent pension bill, which would have, which would have much uh, eased the rules for regularly getting a pension for, for, a, uh, for a, uh, an invalid uh, ex-soldier. Uh, and, and he vetoed that. And, and, uh, and this was, again, kind of a play to the South uh, and that, you know, we don't, you know, he didn't say, you know, he didn't shout from the rooftops, right. all, you, all you former Rebs, look at what I'm doing here. But, you know, the subtle message behind the scenes is this guy's on our side. He also appointed some ex-Confederates to his cabinet ah, okay. and, and um, basically never tried to do anything that would offend the South. And by the way, the tariff issue, of course, was long, uh, the ter- South was long a longtime supporter of the uh, of a reduced tariff of keeping tariffs low so they could sell their 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 cotton abroad with the lower tariff barriers. So, and speaking of the South, you also had the issue of voting rights, uh, which the Republicans brought up. Um, now there were there were some Republicans who said, uh, let me talk about voting rights for a minute here. The after after of course during Reconstruction there were laws put on the books to uphold the 14th and 15th amendments. And those got vitiated over time and you had violence in the South and it was more and more difficult for African-Americans in the South to cast ballots and go to the polls and that kind of thing. And, and Republicans, of course, were the ones who suffered from this politically because overwhelmingly uh, black voters voted or would have voted for Republicans. And um, so you had, uh, you had ingrained, by the time we get to 1888, ingrained voter suppression. In the, in the South and Republicans said, this is wrong. We need to do something about this. Some Republicans who emphasize the tariff said, you know, we have, this, we have this equilibrium situation. We might lose New York, we might lose Indiana. Maybe we should try to steal a few states from the Democrats in the upper South where industries are beginning. Uh, uh, places like West Virginia and Virginia and Tennessee, maybe we ought to cool it on this on this voting rights thing because we don't want to offend 
like Southern voters. So this is a very subtle kind of thing. But Harrison, to his credit, said, no, I'm not going to be quiet on this question of voting rights to purchase the presidency. I will not be silent on this issue. And so, so he did. And of course, another thing we need to mention regarding that campaign was, was Harrison's uh, front porch campaign. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he, uh, he, uh, Harrison, as I said earlier, had long been uh, one who was eager to get on the stump and talk about the party's positions on, on uh, all kinds of issues and advocating uh, election of, of uh, previous Republican nominees and so forth. Um, and so he was, he, but he knew that it would be not probably a very wise thing for him to take a trip. Uh, Blaine had taken a, a campaign trip in 1884, ran into some trouble at the very end of it in New York. A couple That's of right. Yeah. Yeah. Place, which we don't need to go into now, but, but they, they, some people think they cost him his election. So Harrison said, you know, uh, um, uh, you can, you can meet a fool when you make a speech, but if you travel, you're definitely going to meet one. So <laughs> what he did was to stay home and campaign from his front porch. Uh, this really began when he, the day he got his nomination. Uh, he was downtown in his office in Indianapolis, his law office. He went home north of the city, uh, north of the downtown, and he wanted to tell his wife, hey, I got the nomination. He knew it because all these people all over his front yard tearing up his picket fence. And, uh, <laughs> That's a clue. And so he made four speeches in, in that afternoon. And this, this was his managers said, this is great because Harrison was an excellent extemporaneous speaker. And so for the next several months, day after day, delegations, visiting crowds would come to Indianapolis. They actually moved it from his front yard to a bigger park where they could accommodate more people. And um, they had this wonderful system set up where a, uh, his managers would, would ask the leader of the group, the, the delegation, to, to give them in advance whatever they were going to say, because they didn't want them to say something stupid in front of the candidate. Uh, and then Harrison would make some response. So if it's a bunch of coal miners, he would talk about protection for the coal industry. If we were farmers, he would talk about this, so on and so forth. African-American voters, he would talk about voter suppression and, and so forth. So, so what the key, the, what's important is Harrison got to sleep in his own bed every night, didn't travel, uh, and um, he had his own stenographer take down what he said. They typed it up, gave it to the reporters, went to the Associated Press. So across the nation the next day, uh, people opened their newspapers and there's Ben Harrison telling them what he thinks um, day after day after day. And um, it, was, it was a brilliant campaign. Um, what, this is one of the contributions I think Harrison made to the presidency in that he, he brought the president, the candidate himself, much more into the forefront of campaigning. Cleveland, of course, following the prescription of the time, more or less stayed in the White House and kept his mouth shut. Which is, it's, it's kind of a fun that he revolutionized, you know, campaigning a bit, because isn't that what his grandfather did? Wasn't his grandfather one of the first people to travel the country giving speeches? And now he's one of the first people to say, wait, let's do this kind of front porch campaign idea. Yeah, he did to, to some extent. Of course, William Henry Harrison was was not a spring chicken. When he no, ran no, yeah. Uh, so, and, and travel in that time was, needless to say, problematic. I mean, this is 1840, pre-railroad even. So um, yeah. you, you don't get around too much uh, in that time. And it, it was really sort of left to, to um, you know, the party cadres 
in in the states to yeah. get out the vote and you had much more of the rallies and the and oh the, yeah the big parades the, parade, the floats the log cabins all that enthusiasm stuff yeah. the log cabin hard cider campaign yeah and it, this is something else i think that's important to notice about the harrison campaign and, and really it's really happening throughout the late 19th century is a greater emphasis on the calm discussion of issues it, this is a transition period away from the hoopla. I mean, there was hoopla. You know, people love that. Uh, but more and more, they're talking. They're they're talking about, you know, how this is going to affect you, how public policy is going to affect you, and people paid attention. I've done a lot of research in in papers collections, Harrison's and Sherman's, and all these people. And you and over and over again, you see these letters from just Joe Voter saying, you know, this is my job, or I've got this little uh, pottery factory. If you guys lower the tariff, I'm out of business. You know, there was attention being paid to these issues. And so um, there was engagement, I think, much more than I think traditionally is thought about that period. So we, we've talked about all these issues and you've called out there's a couple doubtful states. Can you lock in on what you think was the reason he ultimately won? Like, was there an issue? Was there something that happened that, that pushed the, these key states his way in the end? Um, and, and maybe you might want to comment on how the popular vote went in this election. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's that's a good question. Those are two excellent questions, really. And the I'll I'll be somewhat facetious and say the first one. Uh, no, I can't tell you. Because, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> because anything could have done it. When you have an elections that close, you know. Here, the the popular vote in New York, uh, Harrison won it by something like one point one percent. Very small difference between Harrison and Cleveland. In Indiana, his own state, his home state, he won it by 0.4%. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, somebody sneezed differently on Thursday <laughs> in the election. So, so to pinpoint uh, what exactly changed it is difficult to do. I do think that Harrison himself did deserve a lot of credit for his personal effort in the campaign. And, and the bosses at the time, you know, the Matt Quays and so forth said, you know, this guy really, really pulled his weight in this campaign because it's the standard was, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln sat at home in his parlor in Springfield. Rice. In Rice. Yeah. He was a great speaker. Yeah. Um, he didn't he didn't go out debating Douglas. That was in 58 for the Senate. Um, so uh, the effort that, that Harrison made, I mean, if you want to say what made a difference, I think that that is a, certainly a possibility. Would he have been elected without that? Um, it's difficult to say. I think there's a chance that he would not have. But again, it's all so close. Um, Any you know. of these Jenga bricks, you pull it out in the tower topples. <laughs> right, ex exactly. Uh, but as for the popular vote, Cleveland did win more popular votes nationwide than Harrison by about 90,000 votes, which was a, you know, a significant chunk. But what we have to remember, and this is this is the key thing here, uh, what we have to remember is that in the South, you had very serious voter suppression. Um, you, take a, you take a state like Mississippi or Louisiana, South Carolina, these were, these were black majority population states and blacks overwhelmingly, when they could vote, voted Republican. And Harris, uh, Cleveland won these states, each one of them by more than 70%. Mm -hmm. A black majority state. Guess what? There weren't blacks voting for Cleveland. They were not voting because of voter suppression. And Harrison, could, if, if you did not have that voter suppression in the South, 
Harrison would have won uh, without New York, without Indiana. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole configuration would have been different. And um, the, uh, uh, this is why when they get into power, they say, we're going to do something about this. Um, so, uh, yeah, the uh, Cleveland got the 90, got the 90 uh, uh, thousand votes more. But if you break that down, <laughs> if you take a look at this, this just the old, the, the old uh, slave states. Yeah. The majority he got in the old slave states, Cleveland, that's where he really racked up the votes. Right. If you take everything else yeah. outside the South, yeah. Northeast, Midwest, Far West, yeah. Harrison ran far ahead of Cleveland in those regions. In other words, in the, in the truly contested part of the country, Harrison really beat the pants off Cleveland. But we forget that because of, oh, he's a minority president because he got 90,000 votes less. Well, how many hundreds of thousands of votes that would have been cast were not cast at all. Yeah, it definitely feels like there should be an asterisk on every popular vote from like the end of Reconstruction to civil rights. You know, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, OK, so Harrison wins. He gets into office. And in his first half of his term, especially, Congress passes a ton of legislation. They pass that tariff you talked about. They do this antitrust act. They do a, a silver purchase act. They do a pension act like you were talking about. Um, I did a recent episode where I dove into all of those things. How how involved was Harrison in all of this? Is this just Congress kind of on autopilot doing its thing? Or is the president starting to get more involved in the legislation, legislative process? Harrison was definitely involved in the legislative process. He was a former senator, of course. He knew his way around Congress. He knew how it had operated. But um, in some ways, this is a transition period. Um, you know, when the founders created the, the government, he had the three separate branches, Congress, legislature, president is the executive and so forth. But what was happening more and more as this country became more uh, sophisticated and, and complicated uh, and, and developed, if you will, economically and, and problems became more complex and the population was larger, it became clear that that policy needed some kind of direction, that, 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 that there needed some kind of, to be some kind of central direction to, to formulating and pushing for policy. Um, you know, if compared to European countries, you had the parliamentary system where the prime minister was a legislator and he was worked hand in glove with his majority or his coalition in the, in the parliament. He didn't have that in the United States by construction. But what, what was beginning to happen in this era uh, in the, the late 19th century was more and more presidents are saying, well, you know, we have to be involved more. And this is something that Harrison, I think, made a big contribution on. Uh, for one thing, he had going for him, both the House and the Senate were in his, were of his party. Yeah. So he could do that. Yeah. Um, and so what he did was in his campaign, in his inaugural address, in his first um, annual message to Congress, he laid out a program. You know, he, he talked about what we ought to do about the tariff. He talked about what we ought to, ought to do about the, uh, the, um, the uh, monetary question, the silver question and, and pensions and, and so forth, building the Navy and all of that. So um, first of all, he, he, he articulates a program and then he worked very closely with the Congress to get it enacted. And by that, I mean, he, he met frequently with senators and congressmen in the White House he um, would issue press releases to push them in the right direction. He traveled a good bit. And when he traveled, 
he didn't just go out and make speeches about, you know, the values of patriotism and all that, although he did a lot of that. He also would slice in some things about, well, this is what we're trying to do in this area, and we're going to, you know, push that policy and so forth. Um, he had as a as a private secretary, which today we might really refer to as chief of staff, a former newspaper editor from his hometown in Indianapolis. And this guy knew the press very well and how to deal with them. And so he would get Harrison's message into uh, a good uh, coverage by the press. And, and more and more, Harrison was able to, to put pressure on the Congress. And in friendly ways, too, he would have congressmen and senators to dinner. And they, so there, was a, there was a series of dinners that called silver dinners because they were talking about the silver issue at these things. And, and Harrison would, would basically jawbone these people to, to push them in the right direction. And so, uh, in fact, he even participated in the in the uh, in the uh, uh, composition of key provisions of of legislation, like the McKinley tariff. He he really sort of wrote the reciprocity provision for that, and mm-hmm. and the compromise that wound up in the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. Harrison more or less put that together uh, in with, in discussions in the White House. So he he was he was a legislative president par excellence, really. And so it's amazing how little credit he gets for that because right. because uh, uh, that's what it was really what he should be known for in some ways. Um, he had help in the Congress in the House of Representatives, in particular, from the Speaker, a man named Thomas Brackett Reed from Maine, uh, who uh, basically. The majority that the Republicans had in the House was pretty small, and Reed ran roughshod over the Democrats when they tried to use obfuscation and you know uh, uh, delaying tactics and and all of that to prevent what the Republicans wanted to do. Reed just ran over them with a new set of rules and and uh, was able to to get legislation through. So so yeah, Harrison very much a hands-on legislative president. The Republican Party got shellacked in the 1890 midterms. I looked it up and it was something like the third largest swing in Congress ever. And you just mentioned they're going around telling the people this is what we're going to do and then doing it. So why did they get punished for it? Well, that's a that's a that's a very good question. And um, one of the things I think we overlook um, in American history is that the American people are in many ways a very essentially conservative people. They're, they're resistant to change quite often. And this was true in the 19th century. And the Democrats hammered them in 1890 over their activism. You guys have tried to do too much. They really um, opposed them on the McKinley tariff. They said, this is going to bring in high prices. This is going to hurt farmers. This is going to hurt consumers. Uh, this is going to kill trade. This is going to be very bad for the country. Um, Congress was working during that election season, working on a bill to to support uh, uh, voting rights in the South. Democrats hammered them on that on the on the campaign trail, saying this is going to bring back Reconstruction. This is going to bring back bayonet rule. That wasn't the case at all. Uh, in fact, they were going to turn over uh, decision of disputed elections, not to um, uh, you know soldiers or anything like that, or use troops to man, man uh, polling booths, but instead turn it over to federal judges to, to, to determine, you know, what, what's actually gone on in, in these elections that, that uh, violate the law. Um, so uh, you also had, beginning at that time, uh, a very serious um, uprising among farmers who were disenchanted with their lot. 
and the Democrats played very heavily on this. But but um, the, the farmers at that time, many of them in the early 80s and mid 80s <coughs> had expanded their operations, had gone into debt, uh, thinking, you know, the future is bright. There was kind of a, an uptick in prosperity in, in the in the mid 80s and so forth. Uh, and uh, many of them were deeply in debt and you know that couldn't last. Uh, they sort of built beyond, they sort of farmed beyond the market in a way and they found themselves in economic uh, trouble. And they felt, well, the way to get out of this trouble is to expand the currency, expand the, the money supply. We'll, we'll be able to pay our debts more. And they turned to silver as a way to do this. Uh, if the government would coin more silver, uh, we can, we can um, uh, uh, help ourselves get out of debt. Well, Congress did pass a law called the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, but it was not the free coinage of silver that many farmers wanted. It was a compromise that Harrison had worked out and the farmers were very much uh, disappointed with that. Uh, and so uh, all of these things were wrapped up. Um, Harrison did not get along terribly well with the bosses in his own party. Some of them turned against him, so they weren't all that enthusiastic in 1890. Uh, and um, it's general dissatisfaction with Republican activism that the Democrats played on. We're going to have reconstruction again. We're going to have high prices and all these things. And it worked for them. And they, and they, as you say, they shellacked the, the Republicans in 1890. Big shift in control of the House of Representatives. Republicans hung on to the Senate, but barely. And, and so after that, you know, activism is obviously over. You, you lost, you know, you now got split government again. And we, we quickly get to 1892, this incredibly rare presidential rematch, Harrison versus Cleveland, who was running to retake the White House. I, I think this is the first time someone who had once been president ran for re-election since like Millard Fillmore joined the Know Nothings, you know, in like the 50s. What did Americans think of this rematch? I will mention one other person who did, and that was Martin Van Buren. Yes, yes, Martin Van Buren, way back in the 40s, right? 48, Free yeah. Soil Party, yeah. Didn't make it. <laughs> uh, well, Americans, you know, interestingly enough, both they'd seen both these guys as president and neither one had a particularly um, attractive personality. There was, there was not much charisma to either Cleveland or Harrison. And the bosses of each party, you know, were not, not terribly enthusiastic about either one. Um, but what the bosses of the Democratic Party were enthusiastic about was getting back into the patronage, uh, of course, that uh, they, were, they, were, they were eager to, to win the presidency once again. You have to remember Cleveland's first victory in 84 was the first time that a Democrat had won the presidency since 1856. Uh, and the Democratic uh, leaders in the locales around the country finally got some federal patronage. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Harrison had such trouble in 88, because it was the first time that a Republican took over from a Democrat since 1860. <laughs> uh, he couldn't please all of the, the Republican bosses for pat with patronage, uh, so a lot of disappointments. So they were not that enthusiastic about him. So, so yeah, I mean, Americans uh, uh, accepted the idea that you had these two uh, people running again, but, but, but the enthusiasm level in 1892, and people wrote about this at the time, it, it, it just isn't as there just isn't there as much as it used to be. Uh, and again, it's part of that thing of moving away from Ballyhoo and 
hoopla and all that and more toward studying the issues and and um you know you can't just you, you know to give people a big big parade and a party and get them out to vote you have to convince them of of something and and uh, so he also had of course in 1892 the um creation of the populist party this was the third party of disenchanted farmers they hoped to get laborers to work with them as well um, to uh, try to uh, throw out both of the main parties they really didn't have much of a chance but but they could diminish harrison's vote a good bit as they did here and there and um, they didn't do much in hurting cleveland in the south cleveland hung on to the south and uh, he was uh, elected again so um it was it was uh it was a rematch but um it was one also i think we should remember in that campaign uh a lot of labor disenchantment republicans had talked about the mckinley tariff is going to protect people from overseas uh, uh competition wages will be high and so forth and then in the summer of 1892 there were several strikes some of which were because wages were being cut by companies and like Homestead and Steel in, in, yeah. in Pennsylvania. Steel around then, yeah. And, and, um, and Cleveland could say, these guys have been selling you a bill of goods with the, with the tariff bringing you high, high wages. Look what's happened. They're cutting wages. And so there's this basically feeling of disenchantment that, that gets expressed against Harrison and the Republicans in, in 92. All right. There, there's a thought that popped in my head when you call that Matt and Van Buren that I just can't get out now. Somebody needs to look into New York presidents because those are always the guys who run again later. Van Buren, Bill uh, <laughs> uh, Moore, Cleveland, TR is going to run again later. FDR is going to stay in office till he dies and maybe Trump. Like something's going on with New York presidents. <laughs> it may be so. Maybe so. All right. So uh, back to the selection of 1892, you, you talk about all the factors here. One I want to bring up again is uh, James G. Blaine, who we were talking about earlier. He's come up in the show a lot. He's always running for president. What was he up to during Harrison's presidency and what impact does he have on the 1892 election? Well, Blaine, of course, was Harrison's secretary of state. And they never really got along terribly well. I mean, it, early on, they dealt with foreign affairs and worked reasonably well together. But, but Blaine, Blaine was not a very well man, uh, his health. Uh, in fact, he spent a, a good bit of time in Maine rather than in Washington, uh, his home in Maine, recovering from illness and, and trying to get back on his feet. And Harrison really uh, conducted a lot of the foreign affairs of the, of the administration by himself. But um, when leaders in the Republican Party like Matt Quay and Tom Platt of New York and other sort of boss types became disenchanted with Harrison over patronage issues. They began to cast around for somebody they might be able to uh, use to take the nomination again, away from Harrison in 1892. And the likeliest person to do that was none other, of course, than James G. Blaine, in some ways the most popular Republican of the era. And um, uh, Blaine basically said, no, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be involved. But then almost tragically, just before the convention met in 1892, Blaine resigned from the State Department. And this was the cue to uh, people who wanted to defeat Harrison for the nomination to, to vote for Blaine. Well, by that time, Harrison's men, I mean, Harrison still had a lot of support among 
uh, party workers and so forth. And his managers were able to, to get the party organization in shape long before then. And, and by the time you got to the convention in Minneapolis in 1892, it, Harrison won it on the first ballot. Um, um, there was a third candidate, by the way, uh, William McKinley. Some people thought, well, you know, Blaine's too old, we can't do it. You know, let's go with this young guy, McKinley, but, but that didn't work either. So, but so um, in some ways, Blaine may have been something of a spoiler in the 92 election. Uh, certainly um, his, his allowing his name to be used in, in, against Harrison in 92 was, was, you know, diminished Harrison to some extent in the, in the fall. He didn't do a lot of campaigning. I think he made one speech uh, in the fall for Harrison. And, and so uh, once again, that, that enthusiasm was undercut by Blaine's, by, by Blaine's behavior. And by the way, he, he did die in, in January, 1893. So, um, he he could not have he wouldn't even made it to the presidency in March when the inauguration day was but but he clearly it was it was a uh, it was a tragic uh, outcome for him that he allowed himself to be used this way against Harrison. Um, if real quickly, are there any like top reasons you'd call out as the main reasons Harrison lost the rematch to Cleveland? I think a, a lot of it is what we've been saying about why lost, why they lost in ninety uh, farmer unrest labor unrest, uh, quite definitely. Um, you know, again, the Republicans didn't even defend that, that bill that they had tried to pass to uphold voting rights in the South. It was defeated, uh, by a single vote. Uh, but, but Democrats still hammered about, Oh, they're going to bring back reconstruction. They're going to bring back reconstruction. Well, they had lost, it had lost, but nonetheless, it was hard for the, for the Republicans to get away from that issue. Um, and clearly the country had moved away in the North as well as the South away from supporting uh, reconstruction kind of efforts. And so um, uh, the, Repu the Democrats still, they wouldn't take victory for an answer on that yeah. issue, as it were. So, um, but, but I think labor unrest in particular, again, the bosses were off Harris and yeah. Yeah. Um, Democrats were eager to get back in um, and uh, the, the high price scare from the McKinley tariff, all of that. Uh, sort of um, worked in, in Cleveland's favor. I got two more questions for you. First, what was Harrison's lasting impact on the presidency? What's his legacy? Well, I, I would, you know, he's sometimes referred to as a caretaker between two Cleveland administrations. I think that's wrong. Um, I think really what I've been saying about his activism as a, as a legislative leader should be his, his legacy. Um, what's interesting is that when McKinley came in after Cleveland, um, he didn't model himself on what Cleveland had done. Cleveland had disastrous relations with Congress, even though he had a Democratic Congress the first half of his second term. Uh, it was a terrible relationship. Instead, McKinley, who had been um, chairman of Ways and Means in, in Harrison's administration, basically followed what Harrison had done, you know, setting out a program, even running a front porch campaign in, in his hometown in Ohio, uh, working very hand in glove with leaders in the Congress. The difference between those two guys was that McKinley was a very um, congenial sort of guy, as opposed to Harrison's somewhat uptight, uh, no-nonsense kind of personality. It used to be said that McKinley could say, no to a guy and he would go away happy. Harrison said <laughs> yes to a guy and he would go away mad. Yeah. It's just the, their personalities were such. 
But, but I think that's a, a very important legacy that's often overlooked. Harrison traveled a great deal as president. He got out on the road and he took the presidency to the people. Uh, 9,000 trip out to California and back um, and made speeches all along the way, made more speeches than any of his predecessors uh, as president. So he really, he really was out there as president. And uh, last question for you is, what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Harrison? Well, I think, I think part of it is what I've just been saying is that, uh, that what, what, um, uh, what really needed is people began to realize, uh, Woodrow Wilson, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, wrote a book in 1885 called Congressional Government, in which he said, Congress dominates everything. And what we really need is something more like a British prime minister, which, of course, Wilson envisioned himself as when he became president. But, but, but that was... That, I think, was um, uh, where uh, Harrison was going as well, that, that uh, you know, that, that um, we need to have a, a leader who will formulate a policy, will argue for that policy, uh, will meet the right people in the Congress to try to move it through the process and then in, in, get it enacted and then put it into effect. So uh, I, think, I think that's uh, a very important part of his legacy. If you'd like to hear more from Charles, please check out his books such as Benjamin Harrison, The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, or Minority Victory, which is all about the election of 1888. Thank you so much for your time, Charles. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Gar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I will talk to Charles Hyde, the president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, on why is this guy so unknown? What makes a president memorable? What makes a president forgotten? And what is legacy anyway? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>